0: Greetings and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Bob Banjai and I'm very delighted to be here uh, to talk with another special guest about social activism in the African continent. So this is again part of the Hamu African Non-Resident uh, Fellowship and I'm very grateful to be part of the UFAHAMU African Non-Resident Fellows and today's conversation will be centered on state repression of social activism in Africa, which is a very topical issue. And to talk about this, I invited a friend of mine, a colleague, and an activist. His name is Boise J. Mwa And Boise J. Uh, teaches at Emory University's Institute of African Studies, He's also completing a Ph.D. in English at Cornell University, and he's also a member of the Ubuntu Reading Group Publishing Collective. On top of that, Boise J is also a renowned activist from Uganda. He worked with and still works with the Ugandan civil society, but also works with other social movements uh, across the African continent. CJ welcome to the podcast
1: thank you very much bamba my pleasure to be here
0: recently you wrote a piece in a uh, review of African political economy entitled what is the role of the radical intellectual in Uganda that's the title of the piece and in mm-hmm. this piece you also talk about a personal and and quite traumatic experience of being attacked by unidentified people in Uganda a few years ago. And as a result of the attack, you ended up in a coma for three days. And unfortunately, this type of attack against African activists have become quite recurrent in Uganda, but also in other parts of the continent. Can you tell us What happened on that day of January 7th, 2019?
1: I can say what I remember um, and then say what we know that did not happen and also how far we have come in investigating what happened. So I leave home, which is in Kabale, about 400 kilometers from Kampala. Kavale being in the southwestern part of Uganda and Kampala being um, in the south central part of Uganda and also being the capital of the country. So I get on a bus um, intending to, you know, reach Kampala the next morning um, and do some errands related to the Free Stella Nyanzi campaign. At that point, Dr. Stella Nyanzi was in jail uh, Dr. Phila being um, an academic researcher, but also has become a political activist using her social media. Uh, and she was jailed because she had written a poem about President Joram Seveni. So, I'm also planning to return to the US for the spring semester. So, while we're like about 120, 150 kilometers from Kampala, I decide to sleep off. Um, This is about maybe 3 a.m. Maybe 2.30 a.m. I don't remember the exact time, but I decide, you know, let me sleep off and then I'll wake up when we arrive. Um, I wake up indeed. or. I start to be conscious of where I am, and this is three days later, um, and I'm in hospital, I'm in pain, uh, I'm on drip, um, so many things are happening, uh, and I am told that we were involved in an accident, um, and yeah, and, and that's why we were there. Um. So, you know, I, I get treated and everything and get out of hospital eventually.
0: Just to clarify, when you woke up, you were in a hospital bed and you are told that you were involved in a car accident, right? I
1: was told that the bus in which I was traveling, mm-hmm. So I wake, I wake, I wake up when my mother is there, which is weird, because um, they had left my mother at home. Mm-hmm. And then they the bus in which I was traveling had knocked a truck. That's mm-hmm. what they say. And I got injured. Uh, and, you know, that that's the narrative that I was told when I woke up. Um, but then after, after partial recovery, my friends are coming to see me and, you know, to talk about the acts, you know, like what happened. You know, one of them is a journalist, is a cartoonist with one of them daily newspapers in Uganda and he says you know I I didn't I didn't think your accident or your injuries were this grave Um, so I say oh why why don't you you know why did you not think so and he said because this means for you to have sustained these types of injuries this means this is this was a major accident it wasn't just a minor accident and as a newspaper or as a media organization, we get reports of everything that happens, whether it's from the police, about everything that happens on the road, you know. We even have traffic reporters, like people whose specialization in reporting is traffic. And we did not get any news of such an accident, of such a major accident happening. So he says, this type of injuries, the extent of your injuries, if they are from an accident, then this is weird because we should have received the news. And, you know, also said sometimes they receive the news and do not publish the news, but they receive the news. Um. So that's he's the one who set off a lot of um, a lot of doubts and showed the red flags and the narrative of the accident. And that's when we started to investigate what happened. Um but by starting to follow up the leads of the accident. I can't say now, and there has been at least one in-depth journalistic investigation, I can't say now that we are sure that there was no accident, that no accident happened. We are sure of this because all the evidence that we need for us to be sure that there was an accident, nothing exists. There are no photos. There are no witnesses to say they were involved in an accident with me or were injured. The police, which is, you know, the state institution that would be responsible for a thing like that. And in fact, they have an accident register. Like they have a register of all the traffic incidences that happen in the year. And there was nothing. Um, the New Vision, uh, which is the Ugandan um, government-owned corporate media group commissioned an investigation and the police officers in all the regions near the spot that the accident is said to have happened all said that they have no record of any accident whatsoever and interestingly the hospital where a scan was done on me reported the radiologist reported that my injuries were due to assault. But when I was being discharged from that hospital to go for facial reconstruction surgery, then the same hospital said that I had been brought in and reported as a victim of a road traffic accident.
0: So they, they wrote two different reports?
1: Yes, the two different reports. But of these two different reports, one report from the radiologist is independent of information from outside. It's an expert um, analysis made by them, based mm-hmm. on the injuries they presented. The second report, which says "I I was brought in and reported as a victim of a road traffic accident, clarifies that this was a report as opposed to a medical finding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course the I, I do not know when we will know exactly what happened. Uh but we continue to look for clues, to look for information mm-hmm. to find out exactly what happened in um in the few hours I that I was not aware of where I was, but also my family was not aware of where I was as
0: well. Mm -hmm. And to our uh, listeners, uh, you can read uh, part of this story uh, in the recent op-ed that uh, Boisije J wrote uh, in Review of African Political Economy. And we will give you, you can find the link uh, in the episode description. Now let me ask you this. Why would somebody want to hurt you? Is it do you, is it because of your political views? Is it because of your activism? Why do you think somebody if the conclusion is correct that this was an assault rather than an accident, why would somebody do something like that?
1: Um so this is in 2019, the start of 2019 and the end of 2018. Um, on one hand, there was there was international attention on the incarceration of Stella Nyanzi. And I was one of the people coordinating the solidarity movement around her incarceration. So this was a global solidarity movement with we had events in Oxford, we had events in Nairobi, we had events in Accra, we had events in Johannesburg, um, there were events in the US, there were events in you know, parts of Europe, in Australia, and there was a lot of media attention on the incarceration. So on one hand, the speculation is, this was one way of sending a message to those who were in the country and were doing that work, that this was dangerous work, they could be harmed too. And in fact, there was that impact after my um incident and you know, of people shying away from showing solidarity because they were scared. On the other hand, this is before the 2021 um quote unquote election. And there was fear of a US funded Color revolution happening in Uganda. So at this point, uh, the musician, musician, politician Robert Chagulani, also known as Bobby Wine, was, you know, gearing up to contest in the election. So this is, it's not even a year after the Arua protests happened. And the Arua protests being, there was a by election in the northwestern part of Uganda in which uh, Bobby Wine uh, had supported uh, an opposition candidate under what was then called the People Power Movement. Uh, it was an explosive election because there was confrontation between Bobby Wine's supporters and the Uwe Museveni presidential convoy. And Bobby Wine's driver was shot dead. Um, you know, in in what many people believe was supposed to be an assassination of Bobby Wine himself, um, Bobby Wine and very many members of Parliament were jailed at this point. Um, and Bobby Wine later said he had been tortured; he had been um, subjected to cruel and inhuman treatment. But also, while he was jailed, there was a global there was a global campaign to free Bobby Wine. Free Bobby Wine as a hashtag trended all over the world. You had pop stars, musicians, tweeting Free Bobby Wine. Um, so there was this international attention on Uganda that made you know the government scared that people like me and and I have also a history of curating literary and cultural arts events in Uganda. So of course, Bobby Wine having made his name as a musician, as an arts practitioner, there was the fear that people who do this type of work, whether it is in literature, whether it is in music, whether it is in film, whether it's in in forms of art, that this is what was going to lead to the removal of Mr Museveni's government. So I believe this is why this attack was staged.
2: Mm-hmm. But also
1: this is a time when there were, there were tensions between Uganda and Rwanda. And I don't know up to now the extent to which that played a role. But again, we have clues as mm-hmm. to those tensions having played a role. So the idea being, or the suspicions being, that Mr. Museveni was working... With opponents of Mr. Paul Kagame, and therefore Mr. Paul Kagame also being suspected of working with the opponents of Mr. Museveni, so it was a very it it, it was a very tense period, mm-hmm. uh, and the regime the Museveni regime was extremely insecure and paranoid.
0: Fortunately, your experience is not unique. We've seen all across the continent, uh, governments trying to suppress social activism. And one of the ways they've done that is to physically attack social activists. I can think of activists in Senegal, uh, Chat of the Yanomar movement was also a victim of such actions. Congolese activists of Lucha and uh, Filimbi also. And I can think of Luke uh, Kulula, who actually tragically died in a mysterious fire. And other activists that you yourself know who have been victim of such attacks. Why are African governments being more and more repressive towards social activists and social activism in general?
1: I believe that since the 2010, 2011, um, what in some places was called the Arab Spring, um, since those revolutions in Tunisia, in Egypt happened, um, at least in the Ugandan case, there has been fear of a youth-led revolution. Um, you know, what in scholarship is now understood as color revolutions, uh, nonviolent, built around mass assembly and then demanding for the fall of a regime. Um, but also what happened in Burkina Faso in 2014, um, and and, and what also happened in Senegal with stopping um, I believe it was Abdullah Wade. From extending his stay in power. There is a fear. There's been a fear in Uganda in particular of a movement like that, of youth organizing through um, civil society. And by civil society, I do not mean civil society organizations, but rather, you know, politically engaged citizens. There is a fear of, there is a fear of two things youth-led, but also digital-inspired revolution in Uganda. Um, And and, not just in Uganda, but also in the neighboring, um, so on the African continent, if we may say that. Um, even Even if the Fees Must Fall movement in South Africa might not have been understood in the direction of removing the regime but definitely that also played a role in how that movement ended or how it was contained because there was the possibility of that very powerful youth movement leading to the fall of the government because remember it started as roads must fall for the removal of colonial statues and at universities Mm -hmm. but also the demand for the renaming of some of those universities. And then it moved from that to fees must fall, right? Mm-hmm. So the logical next step was going to be Zuma must fall. You know, Zuma was the president of South Africa at the time. And mm-hmm. then Zimbabwe, you had the This Flag movement, which was also, again, inspired by a hashtag and social media. and. A mass of young people that are disenchanted, were disenchanted with a gerontocracy, with very old people ruling over them, right? And that also, in in some ways, contributed to the changes that happened. So there has been, and I don't know, of course, you've already talked about the DRC situation across the continent there has been mass youth uprisings that are supported by triggered by enabled by the internet or social media or the digital and they're spontaneous in some way they are not necessarily organized around political parties and therefore they become harder to control in the ways that political party activity has been controlled and i believe this is what is driving very brutal very cruel very gory attacks on individual activists because the system cannot understand the nature of this of this youth discontent of this youth organizing and therefore they use the worst possible tool in their toolbox, which is direct violence. But also for a very long time, and then perhaps also in line with the spread of the internet and technology, states worldwide, not necessarily just in Africa, states have invested a lot in the use of technology to clamp down protest. And and here I'm thinking the Occupy movement, both in the United States, but also in Nigeria, if mm-hmm. you remember, there were Occupy protests around the removal of a subsidy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some news investigations, some media investigations have revealed that Israel as a state, but also state affiliated, Companies from Israel have provided software to enable states to curtail popular discontent. So I believe that the states are scared of the potential of technology to support discontent and uprisings, mm-hmm. and therefore have invested in turning technology against its potential. So then, there is a lot of surveillance that is happening through technology through the apps that we use but also there is a lot of pr that is being done using these apps mm-hmm. that supports the state narrative and this can also be this can also be character assassinating activists and the entire movements but it can also be blocking them or hacking into their accounts or you know or using bots To send out massive propaganda that then, you know, demotivate or delegitimize um, movements. So I believe there is a lot of fear at the level of the state, and this is worldwide, but in the particular African context, there is a lot of fear that Mm -hmm. youth using technology can lead to changes of government so easily so quickly and this is why the repression have has become extremely brutal but also to send a message i I believe this is also part of fear tactics to then to to say if you do this this is what is going to happen to you so then when they harm you they are we interested in the circulation of the image of you with your mangled body so that other people can see you, to make an example of you. And then other people will be like, okay, I don't want to do that because I don't want to end up like that.
0: And you might have touched upon that a little bit, but I wanted you to elaborate on the forms of, Repressions mm-hmm. that African activists have been undergoing, so you mentioned you know um physical physical attacks against them, but there are other ways that governments can silence social mm-hmm. activists on the continent
1: mhm um so yes, the worst I'll start with the worst uh they've been targeted assassinations in places um and then in some cases, they, they're, they, they're not even denials, you know, they sort of accept us, you know, so you hear statements like, we don't wish our enemies well, and somebody has just been killed, you know, which is like the state officials admitting that they did it. And these, some in some places, have even happened overseas or outside the borders of the state that is responsible for the crime. Um, there have been also cases of sexual assault um and and this and this affects both male and female activists there have been situations of um activists showing up after you know after they have been sexually violated um there are very, very many activists that have been unfairly dismissed from their work from their employment which is mm. you know a form of um, coercing Re- them.
0: About retaliation. Yes. Mm-hmm. There
1: have also been character assassination campaigns against uh, particular activists, um, whether based on true information, factual information, or absolutely fabricated information. Um, there have also been cases where, let's say, nude photos, and again, this is very gendered. It's nude photos and videos of particular activists being leaked or circulated by state functionaries as mm-hmm. a way of, you know, curtailing their work. There's been naked murder, you know. Uh, massacres have also happened. Um, there have been staged robberies, you know, claiming that also oh, and so was beaten up by robbers, but when really it was state functionaries that did it. Um there've been so many torture cases, the images of you know tortured activists you know which range from um you know flat irons on people's chests or being whipped so that they end up with you know like lines in their backs and things like that and there've been enforced disappearances as well. There was a time in Uganda when hundreds almost a thousand or even more. We don't know the exact number of young people were missing. You know, nobody could say, could tell where they were, you know, and then some of them who showed up later, you know, narrating where they had been, um, where they were abducted, where they were being held and what was being done to them, what they were being told. And of course there have been lots of trumped up charges. Um, y- you know, activists being accused of terrorism, that's a that's a popular one, right? Yeah.
0: Uh, like in Senegal right now.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and things like that. Um and of course, you know, the the hacking of, of activists' accounts, um, and surveillance. I and I, I want to emphasize surveillance because you know the more we go onto these uh, digital platforms the more they, they they present they present um as opportunities to mobilize to organize but also they have very very big fundamental weaknesses and some of those weaknesses are the fact that you know your personal information can be accessed if you know the state is employing particular software yeah i would say among very many others those are the sort of forms of repression that are being used.
0: There is also exile
2: as Mm -hmm.
0: a form of repression. There are many, many African activists today who cannot stay in their home country
2: mm-hmm. because
0: mm-hmm. they fear for their lives. They are basically forced uh, into exile.
1: And, and and in particular I want to you know refer to the Ugandan example. Um I think for a very long time we we could say oh people that are living the country are not living because of the politics they're living because of economic reasons right so there was a time when the narr- the discourse was migration as of now is no longer about political persecution it is about economic opportunity right so the, the language changed to oh these are not really refugees because the definition of a refugee you know by the international conventions and other forms of law you know specifies that you should be running away because of political persecution so then there was a lot of discourse around these are not necessarily political refugees these are economic refugees they're running away from poverty or unemployment they're looking for better economic opportunities but now it's undeniable because there have been some few high-profile cases um in uganda for example so this. I've already briefly talked about the Stella Nyanzi situation. So Stella Nyanzi eventually left the country and she leaves the country after all the things that I've already talked about, having been jailed, but also while in jail have been, been physically violated to the point that she lost her baby. She had a miscarriage in jail because of the beatings, you know? Um and of course a lot of surveillance, um, and being made to feel unsafe in the country. And there are also photos of her being beaten up pretty much, being dragged on the floor, you know. Uh she's in Germany now. Um but also in before she left, or oh no, I th- I think after she left, uh somebody else called Kakwenza Richard, um, also is a creative writer. Um who's written, a political writer as well, who's written uh, critically of the Museveni regime through fiction, but also through nonfiction. So the first time he writes a novel that is satirizing Museveni, and then he's jailed and tortured. Then he comes back and writes a memoir about that jail experience and the torture. That memoir is called, so the first novel is called The Greedy Barbarian, and then the memoir is called uh, Banana Republic. And then he tweets, um he tweets criticizing again the, uh, the regime. Then he's taken in again. But this time he's beaten worse than the first time. And, you know, he, he narrates stories of being forced to dance through the night, um, you know, playing loud, you know, very, very loud music that he has to dance to through the night. But also he narrates stories of Flesh being plucked from his body using pliers, um, so he comes out of he comes out of jail, and his body is full of scars. You know, it, it's it's like as you you know the zebra. His back is like a zebra's back, mm-hmm. So the scars. You know, the because of the weepings and everything, um, and then his his toenails and and fingernails were plucked off and you know at the time he, he leaves jail they're still healing you know so you can see that these nails have been plucked off. so he's also in exile in germany um and then there was another there was another activist uh, who was a student at mercury university and in 2019 they organized they organized a protest against um tuition fee increment which they had called fees must fall Mm -hmm. um and you know she was you know the the leader of this movement one of the leaders of the movement was violently attacked as well she ended up in a coma in hospital um and the university expelled her because of that and she ended up leaving uganda and she's now studying in kenya which is also a form of exile you know uh there is another one who's just been released um who's another activist called Mugumia Sam um who was taken in a long time ago um he was captured caught as he was escaping for into exile so he was caught by Congolese border officials and then he was he was in jail in the DRC for 8 years he was he's just been released and he's not coming back to Uganda obviously um, so he's also continued on his original journey into exile, if you may. I believe that a lot of these stories of exile, so the ones I have mentioned are very direct exile stories in the sense that these people are running away from political persecution. There is no way you can explain their running away. But I believe, and I want to make the argument, literally everybody who has run away from Uganda, none has run away for quote-unquote economic reasons. All everything is political in this way. So even if the explanations would be, oh, that one went as an international student, or oh, that one went because they found a job or they were looking for a job, that in and of itself is also a political situation. I, I do not know if that makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and right now, there's a very big, very big Ugandan community in the Middle East countries. Um, Even if, you know, we are told, you know, they have run away from Uganda because Uganda has no jobs, but you can see from their political expression, the fact that they also are disenchanted by the politics of the country. This is Mm. why, and I think this is also true for other countries. This is why the diaspora communities on the continent, you know, if, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Zimbabwe, whether it is Senegal, whether it's Cameroon, the diaspora communities are all anti government, right? Yeah. Be- because because they understand the reason they are not in the country is because their politics is bad. So they may not necessarily have been tortured in, a, in high profile, mediatized cases. It's still an extent of political misrule, political discontent that has driven them away from their countries.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. Now, in the face of repression, what can or should activists do?
1: yeah that's that's a very big question that's a very big yeah. big 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 question i I don't have the panacea I do not know you know the fifth sure. all problem solution, but I believe one um particularly activists who have already been baptized by fire as they may call it those who have already suffered these um types of violations I believe that we need to start thinking about therapy and mental health in um, as part of the activism, the mental health of the activists themselves that have already been violated, but also those that haven't been violated or haven't yet been violated. I find that most of the movements lack in that aspect. I find that most of the movements do not necessarily provide for mental health support mm-hmm. or have strategies around how to manage the situation when mm-hmm. it happens or even before it happens. And here I'm thinking of, you know, Franz Fanon's um, the, that last chapter in, in The Wretched of the Earth um, notes on colonial war and mental illness. Mm-hmm. I believe that they, we need one we need to update that analyst uh in the sense that the many the means and methods of activism today which are no longer of direct war also come with particular with particular mental health needs uh, whether it is anxiety you know and some of it digital derived
2: anxiety
1: um whether it is People, people, you know, being scared of their images being out there. Uh, whether it is paranoia, there are so many things that are happening at that level, and I think activists need to think about. But also, there is need for thinking about protection or safety on you know, the digital plane, because I'm, I'm talking about the digital a lot more because most of the contemporary movements use the digital a lot. And I mm-hmm. fear sometimes we take these things for granted or we imagine that these places are safe or these places are, are unreachable by the regimes that don't want us to exist or don't want us to do this work. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe there is also need for digital protection support um, but there's also need for solidarity um, there is a lot more need for transnational solidarity among activists uh, mm. for activists in one country to be aware of what the activists in the other country are doing so I will give you an mm-hmm. example when we were so when Stella as he was in jail, and we were celebrating her birthday. We were worried that perhaps our, so let's see, mine and, and some of my colleagues, our Twitter accounts could be hacked into, or maybe Twitter could be shut down, or the teleco companies could, you know, could sabotage our access. So what we did was, and we wanted to celebrate the birthday online. She had written some poems from jail that we had sneaked out of jail. Mm-hmm. And we had let them out. So what we did was what we did was send out all those message all those poems to comrades all over the continent and even beyond the continent to post on their accounts in case our accounts were hacked into or in case social media was shut down in Uganda, which happens very often, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there is need for that practical, tangible solidarity in the moment um that if this is happening in this country what can people in the other country that is safer do to support what is happening in this country so let's say during the election quote-unquote election uh in 2021 social media not just social media internet generally was shut down in uganda so it meant that communication went back to the pre-internet age right so then people would have those who had regional connections would then have to work with their colleagues in Kenya for them to post things, if that makes sense.
2: hmm I see.
1: But then, and, and so because there are not, not, they, they not enough networks of that nature, it meant that some activists were cut off completely because of the lack of you know regional and international solidarity networks. So I believe that one activists need to realize that you're not going to have a revolution in one country in that way without the support of other countries or activists in other countries. But also it's necessary for us to coordinate and connect our struggles. If not because we if we if it is not because we believe in the same vision or same direction or have the same mission, be- but then we need to do it because it's important for the sustenance of our movements. Mm-hmm. Our movements depend on each other, and that type of solidarity is very essential.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: I I agree with you. Uh, when you mention the psychological aspect of social activism especially on the continent where, you know, sometimes the resources are not always there. And on top of that, you add the repression, it becomes a, it becomes really hectic for social activists. And not many of them have the means to seek mental uh support, mental health support. And I agree with you that it's something that social activists in general should think about. And then you mentioned the transnational solidarity, which made me think of the African Network, which was uh, founded in Dakar after the the first UPEC or Popular University for Civic Engagement. And one of the things that the African Network, I think back then, it was composed of uh, fifty three movements. I'm sure it has gotten bigger now. And one of the things they did was to create an entity within the organization mm-hmm. to take care of endangered activists, mm-hmm. I, which I thought was a really brilliant idea. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be curious to know or see how that uh, unit created for endangered activists has been operating. now we are nearing the end of the conversation and I usually like to end with the fun questions the first mm-hmm. question being top three dishes top three dishes that you cannot live without
1: yeah you've already said I'm from Uganda so um okay I know some people in Uganda will disagree with me. Uh, <laughs> on this, but I, I love uh, the matoke and ginat sauce, matoke being, I would say a particular, because when you, when we explain what, matoke being green bananas, but Mm -hmm. when, when you say that, sometimes people ask, oh, do you mean like plantain? And then you're like, it's really different from plantain, you know, like there's so type, there's so many types of bananas, Mm -hmm. it's not just plantain and the yellow bananas, you know? Like there are so, so, so many types. So the matoke is a type of a green banana um, uh, that we make and then um, turn into, you, you you say like bread or like we mash it. Um, and then at G-nuts, yeah, I believe G-nuts exist in very many places. Um, so G-nut sauce, um, with Matoke is usually my go-to. It's like mm-hmm. the top
2: dish, yeah. which means I'm
1: suffering in America because uh, it's very <laughs> difficult to find matoke in the US. Um, oh, really? <laughs> my second one is, I guess this is now coming out of my own learning how to cook phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so far, I do not know how to make many dishes. In fact, I know how to make only one dish. Uh, <laughs> which then means that I'm always making it. Uh, And that is egg fried rice. And I was telling my partner that that recently I have added something to the egg fried rice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now I call it vegetable egg fried rice. Uh, (laughs) My second. And then my third is the dish that my partner makes really, really, really well. uh, And that is lemon fried chicken.
0: Lemon Uh, fried chicken.
1: Yes, lemon fried chicken.
0: Okay. Um, cool. So, matoke egg fried rice or vegetable egg fried rice fried rice and lemon, fried, lemon chicken. fried chicken. Excellent. Now, top three novels. I'm
1: going to do three that are from... um. Okay, two are actually from the western part of the continent. Uh, so, the first one is Chintu. Chintu... A novel by Jennifer Nansubuga Makumbi, um, Ugandan-British writer. Mm-hmm. Um, the second mm-hmm. one, uh, Chintu was published in twenty fourteen. Um, the second one, I'm going to go back to the history, but this is from your country, Senegal. Yay! <laughs> um, that is God's Bits of Wood by Usman Semben, Semben who
2: yeah.
1: is absolutely fave writers, filmmakers, activists, you know, all okay. the things. Mm-hmm. And the third one is from a Western African country as well. And that is Our Sister Killjoy by Ama-Ata Aydou, mm-hmm. who is also an awesome all-round um, creative playwright, um, novelist, poet, mm-hmm. yeah, and very funny interesting ways but also very political and critical of
0: Excellent. society. Nice. And then the last one, top 3 places on your bucket list.
1: I want to go to I may be butchering the pronunciation of the name. I want to go to the place called Popong Popenguin.
0: Oh, in, in, in- Senegal?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Oh, Popengwin, yeah.
1: Yes, they want to go there. There is somebody there that i want to meet um
0: is it the writer um it's popular
1: yeah i want also to go to i want to go to manchester
2: mm-hmm.
1: i want to go to manchester partly because of the literature from the place mm-hmm. um but also because this is where my favorite ugandan british writer lives uh jennifer mcumby but also i lots of things have happened in manchester um yeah a lot of this is where the you know the marxist um second godfather if you may Frederick yeah. you know um that's
0: also godfather. where the fifth pan-african congress took place yes
1: 1945 um yeah, there is a lot that I want to see in Manchester. Also, in my previous era, when I used to support football, I used to support a club that is best in Manchester. I will not say which one, but yeah. So I have <laughs> and, um thoughts about. Are you
0: that. are you a fan of Manchester United? Not anymore. Okay, not anymore. good, good, because <laughs> I'm a- not a big fan of Manchester United. I'm not a fan of the English Premier League
1: generally. Never it's a been.
0: Imperialism. Sorry for, (laughs) sorry, sorry for Manchester fans. But I want to go to Eastern
1: Haiti.
0: Eastern, Eastern? No Haiti. Oh Haiti, Haiti. Haiti. Okay. I want to go to
1: Haiti. Um, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go to Bel Air because I've read about it from Edward Danticat's work. Mm -hmm. Um. And I feel, you know, the more I have read edwige Danticat's work, the more I feel like I may just land in that place and I will know particular places because I've read about them, you know? Like I may know where that graveyard is or if I see that graveyard, I may recognize it from the book. Or if I see that church or where that church used to be, I may recognize the place, you know, stuff like that. Um, mm. I'm also, you know, inspired by all the ways in which AT continues to show or reveal the extent of black subjection, um you know, and, and the dangers or the price to pay for struggling for black freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So to recap, Popongin, which is yeah. uh the the coast on the coast of uh west coast of Senegal. great place. Um where uh Aikwe Arma has been living for a while now. Manchester yeah. and Haiti. Yes. Excellent. All right. And on that note, uh I would like to thank you, uh J for coming to the podcast and discussing repression of social activists and social activism uh on the african continent it's been a pleasure uh to have you on the podcast and we hope that you will come back soon to talk more about your work and your activism in in general
1: thank you for having me
0: yeah and i look forward to and thank you to our listeners uh this is uh Banjai a non-resident fellow of the ufahamu africa podcast and i give you rendezvous for another episode on contemporary african activism in the meantime stay safe and healthy thank you manejamo africa moy suñu natange